Uh, some of you remember this. Most of you don't. Uh, it happened very early on in the, in the history of Springs Presbyterian Church. We had invited uh, a Messianic Jewish rabbi to come to, uh, to teach a Sunday school one Sunday. Uh, and it really was a very enlightening thing. And uh, he basically went through the Passover or the Seder Supper to, to demonstrate to us each and every one of the aspects of the things symbolized there and represented there. So there was considerable learning that took place, I think, for me and other people that were there that day. But I would say this, that I came away from it with almost the feeling that I was kind of a second-class citizen because I was not Jewish because I was Gentile, that there was, something, there was something about it. You know, if you were a Jewish believer, that you were in a special class uh, of people. And I struggled with it a great deal because I think it is very contrary to the message of the gospel. Very contrary, certainly, to the message of, of Paul here in the book of Romans. And that is where we're at now. We've been talking about, uh, about Israel and its relationship to Christ and the gospel and how Gentiles fit into the picture now for the last couple of chapters. I've included in, uh, in the bulletin a, a special insert. Looks like this. I wish I could claim uh, ownership of this. This is not from me. This is from James Boyce. Uh, let me tell you, I, every, you know, every week I'm reading pages, hundreds of pages every week from commentaries on the book of Romans. And probably half of those are the, the words of James Boyce. Probably the most thorough, most in-depth commentary on the book of Romans you're going to find anywhere. It is volumes long. Uh, but anyway, I just want to go through here. These are the things that Paul is teaching because... I do think this. I believe that there really is a misconception and there's a misunderstanding that is very common in the church today that there still is this distinction to be made between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And I think that thinking is very contrary to what Paul teaches here in Romans. That the thrust of everything that he is saying is this, is those things no longer matter. What matters now is that we are joined together as one body in Jesus Christ, whether we be of Jewish heritage or Gentile heritage. He's been, he's been arguing now, I don't know if you picked up on this, since Romans chapter 8, that's what the thrust of all of this has been. He's coming now almost to the conclusion of his argument. But, what, but, but these are just basically the things that he has already argued effectively for from Scripture itself. All whom God has elected to salvation have been and will be saved. Those that God foreknew, he predestined. All the way back in chapter 8. God, and, and, and just remember this, and repeatedly Paul uses Old Testament Scripture to teach us this, that this is not new things. This is not new information. This has been available to everyone through the history of the writing of Scripture. It should not be mysterious to anyone. 
these things. That God has elected certain people to salvation. That God had previously revealed that not all Israel would be saved, but that some Gentiles would be. It was never God's intention to save all of the physical descendants of Abraham through Jacob and Isaac. It was not his intention to do that. How do we know that? Because Scripture tells us that. We understand that it's not the physical descendants uh, of Abraham that we're even talking about here. Paul's been arguing all along that it's not the common thread that holds us all together. It's the faith of Abraham, not his blood. That is what we have in common with Messianic Jews. The failure of the Jews to believe was their own fault, not God's. God left them to the ways of their own hearts. A lot of it was driven by sin. And all you have to do is read the Old Testament. There was sin all over the place in the nation of Israel. Paul is an example of the next one. Some Jews have believed and have been saved. Paul was one of them. It has always been the case that even in the worst times, God has preserved a remnant. The remnant is spoken about all the way through Scripture. Those are the chosen people of God in every age, in every time. The remnant, the remnant, the remnant, the remnant. These are the people that God had determined to save from the very beginning. He sustained them. He's brought them to salvation. Sometimes today we have this idea that the church in the world is really not that numerous. Some of the things going on today, you have to scratch your head, and we do know this. We know that, you know, every person that's going to be in a building today that has church on the sign is not necessarily a believer. We understand that the gospel in in many areas, in many circles, has become so obscure that people don't even understand what it is anymore. God will always preserve his remnant. If you're a believer, you're part of that remnant in our day. The salvation of Gentiles, which is now occurring, is meant to arouse, this is one of the things we're going to look at today, arouse Israel to envy or jealousy and thus be the means of saving some Jews. One of the main things that Paul argues in the scripture we're about to read this morning. In the end, the true Israel of God will be saved. Jews and Gentiles together in one body under the lordship of Christ. No distinction. Period. No greater citizens and lesser citizens. And this is one of the things that Paul argues so effectively in Ephesians chapter 2. That we are one body. No distinctions to be made anymore. I hope that's helpful to you because I know that it's easy if you're studying through the book of Romans to get kind of lost in the details at times because there are, there are all kinds of details in every single verse. 
been helpful to me. So let's read. We're going to be in Romans chapter 11, starting 11 this morning. But again, this, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but the Bible wasn't broken up into chapters. And sometimes when I read it, I'm looking at why in the world the person who decided, or people who decided this is where this chapter ended and the other one started, why they did it there, it's broken in the wrong place. But that's all, it's all human manufacturing. You need to understand this. Now, I'd say there's an advantage to it because it certainly makes us easy, a lot easier for us to navigate through the Bible, right? If we have, we have chapters and we have verses, right? Makes it much, much easier for us. So this is just a human application to the scriptures that really works to our advantage. But we need to understand that it's a human manufacturing thing. My whole point is in the letter that Paul was writing, there wasn't these chapter breaks in all of this. It was just clear-flowing just like if you were writing a letter, the same kind of thing. Everything that's said is connected to everything else. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israel, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they have torn down thine altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? That which uh, Israel is seeking for, it has not been obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them, that their eyes be darkened to not see and bend their backs forever. You notice here that he begins his chapter with one of those rhetorical questions that we see all the way through. This book of Romans, Paul writing things that he knows are difficult. And if you haven't read the book of Romans, you probably can't connect with us. But I know that if you have, you understand that the book of Romans is not necessarily the easiest book to comprehend very often. It is full of deep, deep, deep thought. And Paul knows this. He knows the people he's writing to. He doesn't necessarily know them by name and that sort of thing, but he knows a lot about them in the sense that he knows that every one of them is a sinner, and he knows that, that there are certain things he's going to say that are going to grate against their sinful nature. He knows it. He anticipates it. And the really neat thing about the book of Romans is he addresses all of those. He's, I don't know how many of these questions we've seen already, and we're going to see more as we go through the book. Things that Paul anticipates, wrong understanding or wrong conclusions, he anticipates people are going to come to in regard to the things that he has just spoken or written. 
I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? What does he say? He said, may it never be. For that one true statement, based upon that one true statement, and only that one true statement, you and I can have the assurance of salvation. If you are truly a child of God, you have no reason to fear God ever letting go of you. He will not do that. Now, you might kick and you might scream and you might rebel and you might do this out or the other at times in your life, and we all do that to some degree. But let me tell you something. Once Christ is a hold of you, he will never, ever let you go. That is the only place, the knowledge of that and understanding of that is the only place where you can have truly assurance of your salvation. If your salvation is dependent upon you, your assurance of salvation is dependent upon you, you cannot have it. Because God has a hold of you and he will not let you go. Period. I think I said before that one of the things that Paul has emphasized early on in the book of Romans is that the common thread that people have with Abraham is not his blood descent. It's having the faith that Abraham has that makes one a believer. Not whether they're a Jewish or not whether they're Gentile. That is what makes a believer, is do they have the same faith in God that Abraham had? In that sense, it can be said that Abraham is the father of all of us, regardless of whether we are Jew or Gentile. And it's only in that sense we can say that. Paul is Jewish. If Paul was the only one, the only Jew that ever came to faith in Jesus Christ, that is evidence enough right there to tell us that God did not reject all of Israel. And we know even more than that. I mean, how many of the apostles were not Jewish? How many of them? Now, we know this. Do we have a sense that there was a huge number of people, maybe 90% of all of the Jewish people, when Jesus came, they received him as Messiah and began to worship him as, as God and Savior? Did that happen? No. Matter of fact, when you read the Scriptures, you get an idea that it's probably just a very small percentage of all of them that actually came to faith in Christ. But there were those who did. Why did they? Because their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life back at the very beginning, and God made everything happen that was necessary to make that a reality. All according to God's plan all along. Remember back in Romans chapter 8. That God predestined those he foreknew. 
Paul says that again here. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Period. He never has. He never will. Sometimes it's easy to have the Elijah mentality. There may have been times in your life where you had the idea like, I'm the only one. I'm the only one around me. You know, my family doesn't believe. You know, my neighbors don't believe, etc. I'm the only one that has faith in Christ. It's in my, my little circle here. I'm it. Can you imagine the, the, the arrogance of Elijah kind of assuming that because he had such a great heart for God, he was the only one in all of Israel in his day who did? I mean, he looked around, you know, and, and, and this quote we're reading here comes on the tail of when he, he, he challenged the, the, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Well, God put Elijah in this place. Has he ever done that to you? And you're thinking of maybe you're a little bit lofty and a little bit of a step higher than other people and this, that, and the other. Has it ever kind of put you in your place and showed you who you really are? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, we don't know exactly how many people were living in Israel in those days. I read one estimation of being a, around half a million. So what God is saying that at a half a million Israelites, I have set aside personally 7,000 of them who have not followed after idol worship. I've kept 7,000 for myself. Now they were, not all, they were not obvious to Elijah at all. We need to be careful sometimes of concluding that we're kind of the only one around that is one of those people of God. Sometimes in certain circles you maybe kind of get that idea. Sometimes it's easy to be proud as a Christian and begin to think of ourselves as, as in essence, better than other people. Just remember this. You're not really the person you thought you were. Certainly not from God's perspective. The fact of the matter is God saw you as you really are. God sees you. He continues to see you as you really are. You may put up fronts for us. I may put up fronts for you. All of us will let certain people get close to us, but we never let anybody get all that close. And part of it is the fear that we have that they will see who we really are, and when they, when they really see who we really are, then maybe they don't want to have a much association with us. We all have those secret sins, those besetting sins. But it is an encouragement to realize that we're not alone. 
we can have every confidence of just in the days of Elijah that God has set apart a significant number of people to himself who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they be Jews or Gentiles, black, white, green, purple, whatever. We are bound together by the love of God and the bond that we have with one another in Christ Jesus. If you've never been on the mission field, I would encourage you to go. There are people that I know in Uganda that I love dearly. I grew up in the deep south. Racism ran rampant when I was a kid. I was thankful, I've always been thankful that my parents were not really that racist. They were to some degree, but not to the extreme, say, my grandfather was. So there was not that much of an influence upon us. But I love these black people dearly. I would hope that if given the opportunity, I would even give my life that they would live. They are dear brothers, precious sisters who love Jesus Christ in a way that sometimes, and express it in a way that sometimes I wish that you and I would. They are not reserved in it. They wear the joy of Christ as a great badge of honor. They celebrate Him in everything. We're spoiled here in this nation. We really are. I'm not so sure we shouldn't have a law that says that everyone whether you be a believer or not, has to go and live in a third world country for at least two weeks, sometime in your life, so you can understand how the rest of the world actually does live. These people have absolutely nothing. And Lori and I, when we were in Uganda, if someone could fit all of their valuables into a shoebox, they would have considered to be very wealthy people. They wore second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand clothes. Very often, they had so many holes in them, there was hardly any material left. These people lived in abject poverty that goes beyond anything that I've ever experienced, close to experiencing here in the United States. Poor people here would be very wealthy people over there. The poorest of the poor here would be wealthy in a place like the culture in Uganda that Lori and I went to. But one of the things that always touched my heart was this, was their willingness, out of the little that they have, their willingness to share what they had with other people. One of the most humbling things that ever happened to me, and probably Walter too, when we were there the last time, they gave a party that was really for some of the long-term missionaries that were leaving, that were there with World Harvest, and they'd been there for years, and they were leaving the same time we were. Uh, but they included us in, in that party. It was right after church. And, uh, and we get there to this room. It was in one of the missionaries' houses, which was, uh, you know, a pretty big place. And that most of them live in, really live in 
Straw huts, really. Straw mud huts. That's what they live in, most of them. If they have iron sheets on their roof, they're wealthy. Uh, but the people brought the meal. They refused to let us pay for it. They wanted to give it to us. And so they did that. And it wasn't like the brunch where people serve themselves. It's where they serve you. And because you're the honored guest, they serve you first. And because you're the honored guest, you got one of the slices of meat on the little plate that had meat on it. And only you got that. And you almost choked on it eating it. First of all, because you weren't too sure what kind of meat it was. There's no telling. But number two, you're looking at little children in the room that need that protein far more than you do. You don't want it. You don't need it. They do. But you eat it nonetheless. Because they've given it to you as a very precious, priceless gift to you because they love you as a brother in Christ. And they appreciate your willingness. I can remember Sam and Zoe came here a few years ago. They were actually up here on this stage one time years ago. It was so cool to have them here with us. And, and, and I'm talking with Zoe a few days later. I was worried. I was concerned that they were going to see the way that we lived and they were going to think lowly of us because we have so much and they have so little. That what Zoe said to me just blew my mind. It was this. She said, why in the world would you ever leave a place like this? to come visit us. Humbling. We have brothers and sisters all over this world that are dear to Christ, dear to His church. And our homes need to be open to any and every one of them. Racism is gone. It has no place in the household of God. God is preserving his remnant. And it reaches from the loftiest place to the lowliest place in this world. Verse 6 is very important. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. 
Hall has been arguing chapter after chapter, hasn't come right out and say it so clearly at times, but it's this, is that is who are, those who are saved, whether they be Jew or Gentile, no matter who they are, they're saved only by one means, and that is by the grace of God. Not by their own goodness, not by their own good works, not by their ethnicity. I tell you, one of the most amazing things about Jews is this, is they still have a great sense of their ethnicity, Even though for many, many years, for almost 2,000 years, they didn't have a place to call home. One thirty-six A.D., the Roman Emperor Hadrian finally had had enough of Jewish rebellion. He exiled every single Jew from the the promised land, and they were not allowed to return under the threat of death. They were dispersed throughout the world. And they stayed dispersed until 1944 when the nation of Israel was reestablished. You would have thought over all that time that they would have lost a sense of being Jewish. I'm reading a book that was written by a guy that was in the, uh, was a paratrooper in the Normandy invasion. And let me tell you, it's really good. I can't even remember the name of it or even the, I can't pronounce the guy's name, but it's really good. And one of the neat things about it is he became a Christian through all of this. One of the, one of the things he brings really into focus at a point was, was in battle two times. He watched two his, of his friends die. But he was amazed that they died apparently in peace. Not frantically, not scared, not afraid, no nothing. They died with joy. They died with peace. A peace that he did not know, a peace he did not have. And it mystified him for a long time. But eventually, you know what? He came to faith in Christ. And part of it was because of their witness to him. Remember, we're saved by grace and grace alone. Nothing less, nothing more. And it's true for every single one of us. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. But God is good and God is great. And God is gracious. God has done everything necessary to lay claim to you. As a matter of fact, he laid claim to you at the very beginning. You may not have known him that long, but he's known you forever. He even knew you in eternity. He made you for himself. He made you to be part of his family. He made you to inherit his eternal kingdom in all of its grandness, in all of its glory, in all of its peace, in all of its comfort, in all of its sinlessness.
You know, we talk about unconditional love, and, and I like to think that my love for Lori is unconditional completely, but ultimately probably it isn't. Certainly our love for Christ isn't. But won't it be great today when we actually love people? Just love people? No ulterior motives? No self needs to be met as a result of it? Just loving each other freely? No restrictions, no limitations? And being loved back in the same manner? Never questioning anybody's motives, never having our own motives questioned. That is where we're headed. That is our home. That is why we have no need to fear death. That is why we can do things like look on the coronavirus very differently than the average person does. That is why we know this. We know that God has already determined when and where in the circumstances in which we're going to pass from this world. That is, if we do before Christ comes back. If Christ comes back in our day, then you need to understand, we will never, our body will never die. It'll just be remade new. At the time of His coming. I know that some of these words that Paul uses here, like chosen, just they grate on, 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 on the, the spirit of many, many believers. The idea that God would have the audacity to choose some at the same time to pass over others. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter, really matter one bit whether it grates on you, whether you like it or you don't like it. That is a very clear teaching of Scripture, and to deny it is to deny the God who did it. We're all saved by grace and by grace alone. God's grace and God's grace only. Why? Paul actually gives us the answer to that in Ephesians chapter 2. That not one of us has anything to boast about. No one can say, I saved myself. Every one of us has to admit, I was a dirty, rotten sinner. And God saved me. I didn't save myself. As a matter of fact, you have contributed absolutely nothing to your salvation. Nothing. You've just been awakened to the fact that you are saved. God has done everything else. And that is the only reason that you can be assured of your salvation. Period. God could have passed you over. He does some people. He does apparently a lot of people. But in your case, he didn't. He wanted you. He desperately wanted you. He would have not been satisfied without having you. 
Could there possibly be a greater love? Can you think of anything that demonstrates love in a way that comes close? One of the things that we've addressed through here is this is God doesn't save everyone. God never promises to save everyone. As a matter of fact, what we find here is that in the comparison to all of mankind, it seems as though there is a remnant, only a small fraction. That are saved. But they are saved. By God's grace. that we would know him for the God that he is. Not only a God of righteousness and justice, but also a God of love, a God of compassion, a God of mercy, a giving God, a God who seems to be willing to give everything. He doesn't give everyone ears to hear. He doesn't give everyone eyes to see. Somehow we think that makes him unjust. Somehow people think that brings a, a charge against God, that God in some way must be immoral. If he, doesn't, if he doesn't provide salvation or make salvation equitable and possible for everybody, then that means he's unjust. But that doesn't mean that at all. That is our sinful nature speaking to us. God is bound to do what God wants to do. And he doesn't have to explain any of it to us. And let me tell you something. God has never done one immoral thing ever. Not had one immoral thought. No, anything close. He is absolutely pure. And the reason that you and I struggle with things like this is because we have a sinful nature. When our sinful nature is gone, we won't have any problem with it either. But in the meantime, we cannot let our sinful nature speak for us. We have to let the Word of God speak for us. And we have to receive it and accept it for what it says. Because it's God speaking to us. But again, God has been sending apart His people from the very beginning of time. Always through grace. Abraham was saved through grace. Sarah was saved through grace. Samson was saved through grace. We're saved through grace. And only through grace would anyone ever be saved. Amen.